Hello and welcome to the BG Podcast. My name is AJ Bingham, CEO of Bingham Group. Our guest today is Robert Matney, the Managing Director of, of Government Affairs for Yonder. Yonder is an AI software company that discovers the hidden groups who control and amplify online narratives. Uh, very timely discussion we're having to be having the show now, and I'm sure this is an issue that's going to be going away anytime soon. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, AJ. It's, it's good to be here. I know you had a busy week. Uh, <laughs> we were chatting some last, yesterday. I was just making sure things were okay nationally. Um, but let's, you know, you're, again, y'all are based in Austin. Can you provide an overview of what uh, your services are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're experts in disinformation, in online radicalization, in digital media, and consumer insights. That, in plain English, a, what does that mean? In plain English. Yeah, good. So, so we track um, the way that uh, uh, online platforms are used to um, manipulate and or influence narratives and public discourse. Gotcha. So we, we track, I suppose, the the mostly opaque influence mechanics of the internet. How, how, how do things uh, get to trend? What are the mechanisms behind them? What are the tactics for doing so? And, and in particular, what are the ways uh, that are at least in some degrees disingenuous uh, that, that make, um, that manufactures an appearance of consensus? Uh, so we, we look at things like that. Fair enough. Would it be safe to say that the last four years were uh, were, fair, were fairly uh, productive for y'all? I mean, uh, you know, and and, uh -oh. and and the years before it, right? But, but yeah, it's it's been something that has really been coming on in, in my estimation since about 2012, and certainly uh, the last four years have have been um, a, a very rich treasure trove of coordinated disinformation. And you know the, the mission that drives us at Yonder is that we're really looking to build products uh, th that are for an internet built on authenticity and truth. That's the goal. And, and the work that we came out of, our founders came out of doing national security work. So our company was founded by our CEO, as well as data scientists who helped the State Department um, uh, some time ago, track the recruitment and radicalization of ISIS on Twitter, how, how the um, uh, ISIS's online caliphate radicalized and recruited, but crucially also how they made themselves appear much bigger and more geopolitically important than in fact they were. Um, but of course, belief becomes truth in ways, and so they wielded an outsized influence because of their, frankly, savvy use of Twitter. Um, that led to um, the founders realizing that this is bigger than just ISIS, that uh, if a well-funded entity came along and deployed the same kinds of tactics, uh, that it, it could have much more devastating effect, and that also we were emerging into a new normal. We would just start to see these tactics be deployed broadly, and it wasn't just going to be about would-be nation-states or nation-states. Um, and then that work led to the Senate Intelligence Committee commissioning us as one of two teams uh, to run a careful analysis on the data that they subpoenaed from uh, Facebook, Alphabet, um, and Twitter. Uh, and so we supplied the sort of authoritative report to the Senate Intelligence Committee about 
uh, Russia, specifically that the the IRA, uh, the IRA's efforts to influence political discourse in America prior to 2016. The and IRA is what is that they what is the intelligence agency tied to Russia or a part yeah, of the intelligence it, apparatus? It, it is. It's it's the Internet Research Agency is the IRA. It is basically a, a, a marketing firm owned and run by uh, a oligarch, a Russian oligarch named Prigozhin. Prigozhin is also known as Putin's chef because he began as a caterer for Putin and has become one of the leading oligarchs of Russia. Um, and he ran uh, a shop in St. Petersburg um, that was several stories. It was a building that was several stories, staffed full-time uh, with people who were running sock puppet accounts and otherwise automated efforts to influence uh, discussion. And, and the IRA first targeted Ukraine, uh, then really set the sights, their sights on the U.S. Uh, and Prigozhin is still at it, though that building is, is no longer occupied by Prigozhin and his, his effort. But what they really did was operate like a highly sophisticated marketing agency in the marketplace of ideas, uh, running campaigns uh, that were targeted against customer segmentation in order to influence different people in different directions. Mm -hmm. um, one, uh, is there, what's the tide of them in like RT news, right? Cause I start, I, I first came across RT news and this is, you know, several, several years ago, but like, you know, I had to be at a hotel and just, you know, the multiple channels they have there, right? RT, I didn't, and it's American language, right? And I just noticed it at first, it, was, it seems pretty, you know, it seems like a, anything else, a glossy, slick uh, news source, like CNN level of graphics. And, and, you know, as far as I could tell, their, uh, you know, their hosts and whatnot were all, were American. But then I, I don't know an article came about them, but I realized that oh, they're this is a it's a Russian-owned network. And that's yeah, that's nothing right. wrong with it being Russian-owned in and of itself, but just that you know, like anything else, it's just how is you know, it's a uh, how is it's being aware of where the sources are coming from, funded right, and the particularly for countries like that, where there might be a heavier hand on the media. But yeah, that's right. I mean. RT is is not just Russian-owned media outlet. It, it is uh, explicitly. I mean, there, there's nothing hidden about this. There's nothing covert about this. They are explicitly state-run media. Uh, they, they are state-owned, not just Russian-owned. And separately, they are also very carefully controlled by the Kremlin. There's no, there's no ambiguity about that. There's no meaningful disagreement amongst folks who who think about such things there's a few others uh that are also uh sort of kremlin run media outlets and that includes sputnik and a few others but yeah um rt isn't just russian owned they're, they're definitely uh putin run well i guess right the, i guess the overall thought is or the implication is basically that uh these it's not really that it's not it's a soft touch right i'm gonna make it my own like it's the soft touch kind of infiltration versus like just blatant, uh, blatant propaganda, right? It's the yeah. twists and turns. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's right. I mean, they're always pretty opaquely pursuing the Kremlin agenda. They don't, the RT doesn't try to hide it too much. Um, uh, but they're certainly seeking to influence 
public position, foreign policy, people's thoughts about U.S. and other countries' foreign policy. And, and of course, they have their English desk, but they also have their Spanish desk. And it's worth noting that the English desks and the Spanish desks have a different flavor to them. So, for example, RT in English can, in its headlines, be pretty histrionic, pretty um, frantic, kind of, uh, you know, like yellow journalism-y, you know? Mm -hmm. But in fact, in, in their Spanish language work, they're actually quite staid and reserved and kind of fact-based and well-cited. And so they have two different strategies for the two different languages, um, for sure. Well, God, well, let's get kind of pulling back to a higher level. Uh, we just break down the, the anatomy of a disinformation campaign. Yeah, sure, sure, right. I mean, I, I think I should just frame that because of where we, we just came from in the conversation. Just reference yeah. that. Real quick, on the day, we're just dating this, right? We're recording this on January 21st, 2021, the day after uh, the inauguration of, uh, of uh, our 46th, pre 46th president, uh, Joe Biden. Nice, yes, thank you. Good dating, it's important, um, in part because uh, this work transforms so quickly that the things that we talk about and share will become dated. Uh, it's it's going to be an evolving landscape. But we do work for commercial brands as well. We work with Fortune 500 brands to deliver intelligence on the origins, evolution, and authenticity of online conversations that can impact their brand value. So um, there's a lot of commercial work that we do. Um, and I'm gonna just pick a, a case study. You say, let's talk about a case study. And I'm gonna pick one because it, 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 it's timely um, and it also is kind of extreme in a way. It makes its point through extremity. Um, you may have come across some time ago uh, a narrative that burst out of the gates. Um, the, the, by out of the gates, I mean it was in the public eye. It was in Twitter in pretty open ways involving the brand named Wayfair. Do you remember the brand yeah. Wayfair? Yeah, I woke up, I, just, I, was, I, got, I get on Facebook and just was it wasn't someone looking ads but people were talking about it and I, I didn't I mean I had never heard of, heard of it before in my life I just got it from Wayfair the previous week and I just no. yeah I mean you know in short the the kind of bottom line up front is the theory was that um, owing to the facts that uh, or the facts geez owing to the uh, opinions that Wayfair is overpriced relative to uh, its quality. I'm not asserting that. This is just part of what's undergirding the disinformation campaign. And owing to the fact that they had a pattern, and they may still, of naming their products after people uh, mm -hmm. in, in much the same way that IKEA name, has a naming convention as well. The idea was put forward that, in fact, Wayfair wasn't selling couches, but they were selling children, right? And so when, you know, when it was named the Elisa or whatever, that you were not buying a product, you were buying a, a human uh, um, who, who, you know, might, might fit some um, set of characteristics that is always supplied when you buy an Elisa, right? And, and on the surface of it, that is ridiculous. Like we should pause to take in the enormity of that allegation, how disgusting and how absurd it is. And 
you, you know, the, the incident started out on Reddit. So talking about the kind of anatomy of a disinfo campaign, that it started out on Reddit, users were call, calling out the high price of the furniture, and, and then they started asserting this pattern of the name. And then they started to incorporate the, these ideas into the then existing framework of the Pizzagate theory. And the, for those who may not recall that, because there are so many things, so many things for 2020, but Pizzagate yeah. was what? Well, Pizzagate um, uh, is, is a narrative that gets roped into the fabric of QAnon. So we're going to come back to that in a minute, but just keeping it simple on Pizzagate. Um, Pizzagate was an allegation that there was a particular pizza parlor in DC uh, that, that uh, was beloved uh, by politicians um, where in the basement they were trafficking humans. Um, and, and much like the Alamo and Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, there is no basement at, at this particular. We're, we're dating, we're, I get that reference, we're dating ourselves in that one. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah, dating, <laughs> dating today and dating our age, exactly. Um, I, I mean, just to add absurdity to it, right? But, but the, the thing that it tethered onto is that there was, I believe, an actual period where if you wanted to go find pornography specifically that might include underage pornography, you might use the code term cheese pizza because that is CP and CP is child pornography, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not sure whether or not that it was ever true. It's certainly plausibly true because pe when people crime, they're going to try to hide their crime, right? And so certainly on the internet, people do use code words. So it's plausibly true. But based on that fact alone, and then the fact that in uh, the WikiLeaks uh, email dump, there's a reference to this pizza parlor and someone getting cheese pizza, like literally just getting cheese pizza from a pizza parlor that doesn't have a basement. From that was fabricated this complex theory um, th that uh, that place was selling children. It got to the point where an, uh, a, an armed person showed up at that pizza parlor. So, you know, remembering that that online and offline are barely divisible now, right? It, it's difficult to speak of them separately. So that was Pizzagate. So Wayfair then becomes a kind of next stage of Pizzagate. It's moved beyond uh, that particular pizza parlor. Now it's uh, nationally shippable um, furniture cover, right? Um, and along the way, Pizzagate gets wrapped into QAnon, right? So QAnon is this idea that there's um, uh, a storm is coming, a great awakening, uh, an apotheosis. Uh, it's a quasi-religious tapestry of ideas. Um, great that, awakening. Exactly. After which time, a lot of people uh, in power who have been criming all along and who are in control as part of a global conspiracy, I want to point out that that's a reference back to historic anti-Semitic oh, yes. uh, narratives, right? Mm -hmm. um, are going to all get arrested and they've all been selling humans. Um, and, and then, of course, associating it with Trump as someone who would bring about these things, right? And... Um, I guess part of the point I want to make is that here is that 
the anatomy of a disinformation campaign will very often recycle old tropes and narratives because they already have adherence. And they're more likely to do so if the trope, the narrative is itself open to attachment. It's open to interpretation. So for example, the, the Q drops for QAnon, these are, are these kind of difficult to decipher sets of text. And it's like a badly done horoscope, right? Um, you have to, you can kind of interpret anything on top of it, you know? Um, and yeah. so that makes it open to attachment. You can attach it to anything because it can mean anything, right? And so through sufficient vagary, you can have something that can be recycled again and again and again. So, you know, th there is also in QAnon this, this weird recycling of the blood libel, the anti-Semitic blood libel thing through um, uh, adrenochrome, um, which is why the children are being sold is so that their blood can be consumed because children's blood has adrenochrome. Again, absurd and disgusting and ridiculous. And Wayfair, having done nothing wrong, found themselves right at the center of it. Mm -hmm. So it, it spins up in Reddit, and then it, it achieves a kind of escape velocity. A and it then went out onto Twitter, right? And by the time it was on Twitter, it would then kind of get pulled back into Gab, it would get pulled back into Parler, it would get tethered into these other theories that were out there, and it would then keep erupting again and again uh, out onto Twitter. And that is a fairly consistent framework. And so, you know, before, when we were talking before, we were talking about a kind of food chain of platforms, right? And we're going to come back to it in a minute, I think, but at one end, you can think about the dark web. But as you move, as you move more public word from the dark web, uh, you get to, let's just call it fringier sites. Some people call it gray web. I think that that can be a, a problematic way of terming it. They're totally publicly available. You can get to them and you can get to them with very low technical knowledge, right? With any tools that you probably already have on your computer. And, and, and these are the gabs, the eight chans, the four chans, right? These places, when compared to the major platforms like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, et cetera, they don't actually have a very large user base. They have been growing lately for reasons we can get into if we want, but they don't have a very large user base. So you're not gonna influence the court of public opinion on those platforms, right? You, you, you can't get there uh, from here. But what does happen is the ideas are fomented Sometimes there's radicalizing sincere belief, but very often there is absolutely cynical planning. For example, let's, you know, let's plan to take this brand out. This brand did thing X that I don't like. So let's take them out and let's talk about how we're going to take them out here and workshop it, develop memes, tweak language until it's ready to then be released as if it were some sort of campaign, marketing campaign, right? And then it gets taken to the wider public and that wider public is available on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And, and so, you know, on this side of the dark web is also included things like Telegram uh, or direct messages on any of these platforms or um, 
oh signal or uh, etc where they're they're walled gardens you can't get to them without some kind of permission right uh, you can't see them they're not publicly available that's a good place for things to get planned and prepared and then sometimes they go out into the next level which is 4chan 8chan where you can just get there you can see it all if you want um, and then from there it tends to launch to the more mainstream platforms so I, that that would be how i'd gloss an anatomy of a disinformation campaign although i would note that it's cyclical in, in part because and this is something we saw uh, at the Capitol event, which is oftentimes uh, when physical activity happens, it is happening in such a way as to be recorded. It is staged for recording. It is then recorded. Sometimes it's broadcast live and that feeds back into the disinformation, right? And so what happens in the physical world by a lot of these um, perpetrators is actually being done for show so that it can further radicalize or just simply push an agenda, whatever that agenda is, which may not be radical, but so it's, it's, that's a, an anatomy and it's cyclical. How do you, I mean, so we collect the case of Wayfair. So if you're, you're, you're company X or you're Wayfair and you find yourself, you're in the business of moving for, of, uh, of selling furniture online. You wake yeah. up, you know, next, you get up one next morning, you're the CEO or you're the CTO and boom, you're seeing traffic. You're seeing, you know, people tweeting, you know, you're, you're being hashtagged and added. How could you do this? X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And obviously this wasn't your radar to be tagged to a child sex ring of any sort, trafficking ring of any sort. But here you are, and these attacks are coming from, you know, Twitter, Facebook. You might be getting, you know, some politicians will be picking it up, and you know, as a as a campaign device and using it too. So what do you do, right? Yeah, I'm the, but, I'm the CTO of Wayfair, and they may I don't I don't know if they were client of yours, but beyonders. I'm the CTO. I'm the CEO of Wayfair. This is happening to me. What what where should my next steps be? Yeah, good. Um, I mean. The, the answer in part is be tracking this ahead of time. Um, uh, and so, you know, you want to make sure that you know your place in the public and uh, you understand that you're part of the establishment. Um, you probably want to do some, some red teaming, some uh, planning out, some possibility planning where you say, what are the major narratives that are out there online because we're tracking them? Uh, and what vulnerability do we have relative to it? Is it possible that in a brilliant whiteboard session, you as the CTO, someone might have said, hey, this, you know, these conspiracy theories about human trafficking um, are really going crazy. I want to call attention that our products are named after people there could be a vulnerability there. Well, I mean, listen, I'd want to, I'd want to buy that person a beer if they had that insight. Right. But it is possible. You, you can look at the topography of your brand, the topography of your communications and what's out there and look at the really risky narratives out there and see if there is a likelihood of attachment. So one, be tracking in advance Two, red team yourself, know your, your brand's position and what's ri risky out there. Three, when it happens, it really varies based on, on how big it, we recently had one of our major clients 
um, have a narrative burst. And we were able to, on Christmas Day, say, hey, listen, this looks like it's going big, but it's not going to go big. Because we know how the networks influence each other. And we know that information that gets to that network just kind of sits there and dies. So in some cases, the right action is to do nothing. Um, if you're going to take action, it, it's, it's going to vary, right? Uh, certainly, if I'm a comms professional, which is who we usually uh, uh, work with, you're always going to triage. Do I ignore? Do I monitor? Or do I escalate? And for any of those three, you're going to need the reasons why, right? Um, and if you escalate, it's going to go to a CTO, for example. And you're going to have to have a careful conversation about whether you're going to respond and how. And when you do that, you better know how likely is it to get bigger uh, and do we need to do anything about it. But very often, the right way is simply lead with setting facts straight and then find your allies who will advocate for you back, right? So know who are the segments out there, the networks that are passionate about the values that you share with them, whether that's your brand or whether it's your brand values. We can imagine like some of Levi's articulated brand values or something. Find the people that care about those values and engage with them and just build up your advocacy among hyper-passionate online users. And then often you can expect that they will go fight the battle for you, right? And, and you know, go and say, look, that's ridiculous. Obviously, Wayfair is not selling children. That's stupid. And here's what they do that's good, right? So building allies, your, your coalition is key. Mm -hmm. What I saw just outside and not in the, in, not in the industry is typically, yeah, you need, you need that the group of folks. And pretty much it's like if there's a loud voice of folks, the mob, if you will, yelling about your brand, you need your, your, you know, your folks pushing left, yelling just as loud. I'm putting this in probably in like my layman's terms for explaining it right, but no, that group needs, I would say that you need those folks, those, those supporters, those people you know, to yell just as loud because there's even an edge over that mob. It's gonna it's gonna spill over if you will, right? And you know, yeah. You know, and then, and also too, you know, the wedding out part. Unfortunately, or fortunately, in this era, <laughs> you get through a week. And it depends. It depends when it happens, too, right? You get through a week. Normally, something else, some other things, gonna pop up because, at least as I've experienced, I feel like our country can only handle one kind of even online. We can only handle one kind of thing, quote unquote, if you will, right? Now that's frustrating. Obviously, you're the CEO, CTO of a company, and they're you know, you're getting your investors or whoever's yelling at you or, or not yelling at you, you're, you're getting pinged and DM'd and, you know, and this stuff spills, these, these, you brought, would be raw pizza gate, pizza gate, these uh, online deals spill over to the online deals, these, these campaigns spill over in the real world. We saw that two weeks ago with the attempted introduction of the cat or attempted coup of the capital, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, I mean, talking to that too, do you think, we're kind of looping back with QAnon. Did this last year, right? Would would what would would the level of because folks were in their home more, daily lives were disrupted to a degree. Folks that may you know, there's a certain layer of I think probably a certain layer of folks in America that that live you know rain rain sleet or snow whether it's good outside or not. They're online just getting sucked into these things, right? And then you have to layer above that. And what I just least read about QAnon in the last several weeks leading up to President Biden's uh, election or, or inauguration, rather, was just these stories coming out of folks who 
either, you know, quote unquote, you know, QAnon survivors, not quote unquote, they're QAnon survivors or folks who had lost family or friends either because they were involved in the QAnon or their, their, their spouse even was, right? And, and I guess one of the, the common threads I saw was it was tied to folks being at home, right? It's more. There was nothing to do, relatively speaking, in your job, but you, your routine's disrupted, so you're online more, um, you're just digging the things more, and then, you know, yeah, you know, not pointing fingers, we get certain algorithms on, on mainline platforms that you, you, you watch one thing, they may come in front of you, and that leads to this. And then the longer you're on it, it may lead to this darker stuff. It's public, but you, you as a, you, I guess a casual person in, in a certain sector, you might not have really dug into with this stuff just put in your face. And then the plausibility, to me, I always find the plausibility part, right? If something's somewhat plausible, that's kind of, that's the, that's the, that's the foot in the door mm, of uh, right. critical thinking. Yeah. But, yeah, I, that's right. The last thing, I mean, I remember just remember when Obama, for, pre, President Obama first got elected and the narratives about the, where he was born, he's not American. And I, mean, I had the thought of Jesus, I mean, well, yeah, Jesus Christ, you can convince, and I guess it wasn't new with my first experience saying how you can really convince people about anything if you give them any part of the truth. I mean, was he in these places? Yeah, sure, right? But, then you, but you take that and you, enough part of the American population will believe it. You just need a little yeah. bit of truth. Of something that are factual accuracy. Yeah, that I mean, uh, so agreed with you. Made a, a bunch of really strong points, and one of them is uh, this: a element of fact is virtually always a part of an effective coordinated disinformation campaign. And in, and indeed, I don't. So, well, just to point that out those products are named after humans. That is a fact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is the case that, uh, that Epstein was a, a horrific uh, 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 sex offender uh, and, and human trafficker, right? And he did know a bunch of people in power. The, those are facts about the world. Uh, and uh, he, that makes the plausibility of some sort of massive conspiracy maybe a little bit closer. And, you know, to the point of QAnon in particular, on your earlier point, we know that QAnon is is singular, uh, not singular, but uncommon in in that it is quasi-religious. It has a kind of mystical flavor to it. It it is cultish. And I do think that one of the hallmarks of cult recruitment is isolation and isolation from any contending ideas. And so, you know, maybe if that person had gone into the office, they would have just heard some contending ideas that would have pushed them away from it. But being holed up at home and purely online, I wouldn't be surprised if that contributed to some of this radicalization. Yeah, maybe. That's that's the scariest thing too with radicalization, right? I mean, we've had you know, talks about, or talks, um, discussions about domestic terrorism and radicalization, at least in my, my memory, kind of restarted with Vade. I was in middle school when the local Oklahoma City bombings happened. But, you know, these were, those were seen as one-off events. And, you know, coming out of, especially this last few weeks, weeks of events, we hear, I've been seeing more talk on just, I would consider the mainstream media net, networks about the rise of radicalization and really using the same tactics that, we've seen work with ISIS and um, other or terrorist groups, right? You have, you have the, these are like, you know, the, the, the well-produced videos on YouTube. You have 
you know, us and they're kind of you're the isolation part, like we're right and they're wrong and this is why and you're an insider and, and everything else. And do you at least, you know, not naming your clients right, but going forward, um, you know, you work with private private brands, but just is are you seeing in the sector a rise of at least domestically on just how do we, I mean, how do local governments as well and the national and federal government just work to, you know, really track and identify either, not so much individuals, but pathways and sandboxes, if you will, for radicalization? Uh, so, so do I see an increase in like appetite to resolve that issue or to make that well, better? Well, I mean, the appetite's there, but it's just, if it wasn't there, go this, this past year, right? And just again, I've, just, I've only cursory read or about this about recent years where the FBI has always been warning about the rise of domestic terror groups. We saw at least I read about in the '90s when you know, under President Clinton, Clinton's administration there was an increase in militia type groups. You know, proud, not the Proud Boys, but groups like that going back to the mid nineties. Right. And that were, or, that weren't, you know, that were very organized and very disciplined groups, right. Yeah. Small cells, but still organized groups. And I mean, basically do you see, do you foresee a lens turning inwardly in our country for those pathways to radicalization? And to me, look, and I'm not in your industry, but it's everything from, you know, is it, if I'm trying to, uh, you know, just turn someone or just get someone in the cause like, Am I on Xbox Live? Now, I, I'm just making up an example, right? This is off the cuff. I'm on Xbox yeah. Live. I'm like talking. I'm just, you know, I'm saying a certain script of things and looking for folks to kind of get it, right? Yeah. And, th- yeah. and, th- and honestly, this is nothing new because we know how, how terrorists recruit in the Middle East, right? Yeah. Folks, you know, it's, it's a script of this stuff. Yes, so anyway, that's right. It, it interests me just how is the, the vigilance part of it, I guess, but just, you know, you foresee the industry turning to that and you know, looking, you know, again, I'm not in your industry, but even that one part of my mind, I'm okay, well, just, I got to go to a place where I can't be on the street saying, hey, come to my cell, or, my, you know, my, my group, do X, Y, and Z. I'm going where the people are. Uh, that's fantastic. I mean, so I think a lot of things are converging. One, I think that there are very significant signals uh, from, from um, the incoming administration, from, from President Biden's administration, including in his inauguration speech, that he's going to take epistemological issues very seriously, right? The issues of disinformation very seriously. Um, the fact that that made it in the inauguration speech is, I think, a really telling point. But there are subtler signals. Some of the folks that he's um, selecting to, to head different agencies have a background in this thing. And, and his very clear, lucid articulation about domestic terrorism and in particular white supremacy as something that we must wrestle with and, uh, and figure out how to make better. I, I take I take those statements at their word. I believe that that is accurate. So that's a thing that's converging. Another thing that's converging is that technologies like ours is getting better, right? Another thing that's converging for good and for bad is that the platforms are in a bit of a race against the clock. If they don't take significant action, they're going to get legislated all the kingdom come. And, and they're taking actions that... Um, they're now taking actions, but they're kind of ham-fisted actions by and large. Um, it, for example, late last night, um, the, the Chinese consulate to the US 
Twitter account was banned. Well, I, that's, that's a problem. That's probably problematic, right? We probably, our consulates are how we keep channels open, right? And it's not like Twitter has an obligation to respect those things. They're a private company. Um, but it probably is not a great idea, notwithstanding the horrible human rights <laughs> record of China, right? Which I'm certainly not advocating for, for um, them being uh, a noble regime. They're not. But so, so I think the platforms are going to be racing to take action. Uh, I think the legislature is going to be uh, uh, motivated to take action. Uh, and all of those things are going to collide. And my hope is that the right decisions are made in the right ways and the right advances are made. And where we get to is a place where this is a problem that we can manage, like we manage spam. We're not going to fix the disinfo problem, but we might be able to manage it. Uh, Robert, I want to uh, leave us there. I want to thank you for your time. Robert Madney is the Managing Director of Government Affairs at Austin-based Yonder AI. Thank you for your time. Thank you, AJ. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.